actually looking at what many have termed, although you could argue that it's maybe not the greatest term, uh, an Old Testament uh, parable. So Judges 9, let me give you at least a little relief. We're not going to read the whole chapter. (laughs) We'll be here forever. Uh, But we're going to read uh, verses 1 down through 24, and then the last three verses of the chapter, and then we'll bring some uh, context into it. So before we read and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we delight in your word, and we now come to it asking for you to bless it unto our hearts. So we desire to be a people dedicated to you, a people who think heavenly things, whose will is always inclined to be obedient, and the people who desire to love you more and more. So change us, fill each of us with your spirit, draw us to yourself, convert us if we aren't saved, and edify and encourage us as your people, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Judges 9 at verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-barith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all beth and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak at the pillar of Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you were anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and beth and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from beth and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there. 
because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Then skip down to verse 55. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam, or the son of Gideon. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here, I wanna just dive right into the passage with this theme. Be careful whom you choose to reign over you. I want us to notice four things. The selfish desire for an earthly king. Second, the appeal of earthly kings. Third, the deliverance provided by the heavenly king. And finally, the selfless servants of the heavenly king. So be careful whom you choose to reign over you, beginning with the selfish desire for earthly kings or for choosing them to reign over us. Right before Judges 9 begins, we read this at the conclusion of Judges 8, verses 22 and 23. Gideon's at the end of his rule, or his reign, not really reign as a judge, but at the end of what he's doing as a judge. And the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon gets this right. He's telling the Israelites, look, let the Lord rule over you. You just do what you're supposed to do. Well, if you skip ahead to 1 Samuel, right after the book of Judges, we discover this in 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, Behold, you are old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, and Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. What was to be characteristic of the people of Israel is that God would be their king, and they would follow him in obedience. But what was characteristic of the Israelites all throughout the period of the judges, a really very difficult period, is they wanted to be just like the other nations. And this is what was soon to come for the Israelites. Indeed, they would get a king, and they would not like the king, and it would not go well for them with that king, and they would be like all the other nations. Now, when we flip over to Judges 9, verses 1 and 2, we're told that Abimelech went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his family, look, I want you to go to Shechem. I want you to start speaking in the ears of the leaders there and say, hey, Gideon has left 70 sons. Do you want one of them, the son of his concubine, to reign over you? Or do you want all 70 sons of his wife to be the ones reigning over you? In other words, what sounds better? And oh, by the way, remember my family members, as you tell the leaders of Shechem this, remember that I'm your flesh and bone. So in other words, I'll take really good care of you. You want me in charge because I'm on your side. You're my mother's relatives. You're the relatives of Gideon's concubine, my mom. So I want you to listen and notice the question that is asked, which is better, that 70 sons of Gideon rule or that one son rule? That's a great question. What's the answer to the question? <laughs> We're all thinking, well, 
Not really sure. It's, the answer is actually neither. It's not better that either option takes place. It's best that the Lord rule. Gideon just made that clear. But the question that uh, Abimelech asks is actually a narrowing. It gets rid of the truth and proposes two lies. What's better, me or 70 other people? The question is deceptive. What is even more astonishing than Abimelech's method to try to become king is that the leaders of Shechem went for it. So Judges 9 and 3, his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. Now I want you to catch what's going on here and notice the progression. Abimelech appeals to the selfishness of his family members and the Shechemites, which is better for you, not what's most to God's glory, but which is better for you. Then he tells his family, remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And then thirdly, guess what his family members are saying to the leaders of Shechem? He is our brother. Verse three, he is our brother. So now we've got all the leaders at Shechem and Abimelech's family members saying, look, he's our brother. He can rule over us well. He will look out for us. Can you hear the hope? He's one of us. He's going to make sure that we're well taken care of. But if the 70 sons of Gideon start to rule, they won't necessarily look out for us. They won't necessarily have our best interest in mind. Having anyone else reign over us would bring pain and difficulty and suffering. But Abimelech, he's our flesh and blood. He'll make sure that we're well taken care of. So there is the hope-filled heart setting itself on an earthly king. And then it gets really ugly. In verse 4, they give Abimelech some money from the house of Bilberit. He hires some people, and on one stone, he kills all the 70 sons of Gideon, with the exception of the youngest one, Jotham. Jotham gets away. Not only are human beings hungry for an earthly king, and especially for the kind of king which will favor them and bring them the things they want, but we as human beings are willing to do pretty much whatever it takes to indeed have an earthly king reign over us, including a lot of murder, including hiring people to do dirty work for us. This is the hunger for an earthly king. A hunger Gideon had to deal with, a hunger Samuel would one day face from the Israelites, and a hunger now displayed. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. If you love one, you will hate the other. This is proven true right here in Judges 9. If you're going to serve the Lord, you'll hate these other earthly kings. If you're going to serve these other earthly kings, you'll hate the Lord. But we can't serve two masters. Now I want to pause here for just a moment and notice something which is right, kind of right on the surface. Nothing really deep about this. All human beings have a hunger for a king. The kings may differ, but we all want someone to reign over us or something to reign over us. And we are all offering unconditional obedience to our king, whatever that king might be. The king might be food or comfort or convenience, might be houses, cars, possessions, might be clothes, looks, fitness, might be career, fame, popularity, might be family, marriage, children, it might be Buddha, Allah, or self-righteousness, or it might even be us as our own gods. But the human heart, after we've been kicked out of the garden and are at odds with our king, erects a king that we will indeed worship. Everyone in this world hungers for a king to reign over them, a king of our own choosing. What is so sad about this episode and what is so sad in our day all the way down to this day is that the king people choose to have reign over them is seldom the Lord. It's seldom the Lord. The path is wide. The road to destruction is broad. There are many on it. 
Many say, I'll have a different king, but I'm not going to have this Jesus to reign over me. And there are very few who are on the narrow path who say, indeed, I'm going to serve King Jesus. And I'm going to follow him. He's a great Lord, and I will have him to be my God. Second thing I want us to notice is the deceptive appeal of earthly kings. So all human beings want a king, and there's a reason we want it. Uh, and and the reason we're, there's a reason we're tempted to want earthly kings, because they have a deceptive appeal about them. So if you look at verse 15, the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you act in a good faith and integrity, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, verse 20, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and devour Abimelech. So there's an appeal to earthly kings, beloved, to have kings other than King Jesus reign over us. And the first appeal is they promise us that they have our best interest in mind. Again, the reference to I'm your bone and your flesh. That's what Abimelech promised his family members and also the leaders at Shechem. And if you look at verse 15, the promise really amps up. The bramble said to the trees, come and take refuge in my shade. Now it's, it's, it's really laughable. <laughs> what shade does a bramble have? At most, if this is de a decent sized thorn tree, it will have a little bit of shade, but it doesn't have enough and the bramble is not known for shade. And it's saying, come and take refuge. Well, brambles sometimes can catch on fire. There is no refuge in a bramble. But what does the bramble offer anyways? Refuge. It's a flat out lie. The bramble may not even know it, that it's a lie. It thinks maybe it can provide it. But we, the reader looking outside say, this is deceptive. But there's an appeal there, right? There's a promise. Hey, come and take refuge in me. If you have me as your king rather than the Lord, life will go well for you. What is a career promise? Security, status, praise, right? Can it make good on those and provide those for you? Not ultimately. What is a family promise? Belonging, fellowship, friendship. But can it provide those ultimately? No. What do addictions promise us? Joy, escape from pain, pleasure, and happiness. Can any addiction actually provide those things? No. But they preach it, right? They tell us, come and take refuge in me. But indeed, when we make anything king other than the Lord, we discover that they can't make good on it. What does any other king other than King Jesus uh, promise? They promise a piece of eternal life and happiness, but they can't deliver on the promise. False gods create, uh, you maybe heard the language FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Hey, if you have me, you won't miss out. If you follow this, you won't miss out. If you let me reign over you or it reign over you, you won't miss out. But indeed, you're not missing out on anything other than missing out on pain if we have any king to reign over us other than Jesus. There's no shortage of earthly kings in the world, beloved. There is no lack of desire for having them reign over us. They are appealing, but their appeal is deceptive. I want us to notice something about this. If you noticed, the first tree that Abimelech goes to is the olive tree, then the fig tree, then the vine. They all turn it down. And if you read to the end of the parable, we also discover something else about uh, the people who are asking to have these various plants reign over them. We don't know who the Israelites are. We don't know who the trees are that are asking to be reigned over until way at the end of the parable in verse 15, 
And we're told that the people asking to be reigned over are the cedars of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon went to an olive tree, a fig tree, a vine, and then a bramble, asking each of them to reign over them. The cedars of Lebanon, in case we're not quite as familiar with them, uh, as the, the Bible teaches this about them. 1 Kings 4.33, the cedars of Lebanon were so noteworthy that Solomon is revered for speaking of them. The cedars of Lebanon were so massive that cutting them down is referred to as a symbol of great strength and boast. So, uh, think Sennacherib in his army, 2 Kings 19 and Isaiah 37. The cedars of Lebanon were so massive and strong that the psalmist, when thinking of how to describe the power of the voice of the Lord, writes the following in Psalm 29, verse 3. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. These are incredible trees and incredible forest. And these cedars of Lebanon are going to an olive tree, a fig tree, a vine, and then a bramble saying, rain over us. This is, at surplus level, just ridiculous. What are these cedars of Lebanon? What are the people of Israel, what are the leaders of Shechem thinking? A 10-year-old with a 20-word vocabulary can reign over a dog, piece of cake. A bit and a bridle can reign over a horse. A rudder and an engine can reign over a ship. A fence and a gate can reign over pigs, cattle, and chickens. But what is worthy to reign over the cedars of Lebanon? What's worthy and able to reign over the most majestic creatures God created on this earth, namely human beings? Who is able to reign over us? Who alone is capable of doing this? God alone, beloved, is the only one capable of reigning. And any other God we erect in his place to reign over us is like the cedars of Lebanon asking a bramble bush to be their king. It's like citizens of the United States asking a gerbil to be their president. It's like well-bred Alaskan Huskies who are running the Iditarod asking a snapping turtle to be their lead dog. Ridiculous, right? The cedars of Lebanon are doing what? Stooping down to ask a bramble bush, give us refuge, you promise us shade. They're towering. The bramble bush has no possibility of pulling this off. But look how desperate they are for a king. Any king other than King Jesus, whom we seek to reign over us, is aiming too low, and it's asking for a lot of destruction. Not only are created things not worthy of reigning over you, beloved, because they are of far less value than you as an image bearer of God, but they are also completely incapable. There's no one, there's nothing in all of creation that is capable of reigning over you and me for our good and pulling it off other than the Lord. Jared Wilson put it this way, in the end, if we will not serve God as God, we will find our refuge, no refuge at all, but a house of brambles, dry and thorny and reserved for the fires of hell. Third thing I want us to notice from this parable is the deliverance provided by the heavenly king. Way at the end of the chapter, we read that uh, verse 53, I'll back up just a little bit. A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus, 
God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. First thing, or two things I want to highlight. God's judgment is sure, even if God's judgment is delayed. What is interesting, some have noted that in Judges 8 and 9, God's speaking and his actions are absent. His name is used, but we're not told that he's acting or that he's speaking in Judges 8 and 9. And so it looks like God is absent, that he's not involved in what is going on in the lives of his people. And then indeed, Abimelech has taken things over after Gideon. He's going to have his way. He's going to reign and be in charge as a judge or as a, a, a pseudo king in Israel. And then when you flip way over at the end of the chapter, we get this indication that indeed God was not absent. And he let Abimelech do his thing for three years. And during the course of that three years, which must have, must have been a very difficult time period for the Israelites and for what was going on there, it looked like God was not in charge. But then Abimelech dies and the curse of Jotham comes on him and the leaders of Shechem. And what we discover way at the end of chapter nine is that indeed God was there. He was present. His judgment was delayed. He waited for three years before the parable of Jotham came to pass. Now, there's a lot we could do with this. I wanted us to think about this. In 2 Peter 3, Peter talks about something similar regarding God's final judgment. There's a lot of people who even now today are saying, hey, where is God at? They're marrying, they're giving in marriage. People are partying, they're living it up. Hey, God isn't around. And they're doing the same thing that people did in Noah's day. Yeah, he's not really gonna send judgment. But just because God is patient and God is waiting so that all people will come to repentance, so that those who don't know him will have a chance to turn around and believe in his son and be saved. Just because God is doing that doesn't mean that he is absent. It doesn't mean that he's not gonna come in judgment because he will. And when he does, everyone will know, indeed, God was patient out of kindness. God was patient so we could repent. God wasn't patient, God wasn't not judging us because he was absent. So God is always Watching, beloved, he is always aware of what is happening all over the world. He is fully aware of what is taking place in every one of our lives and the lives of all of his people all over the place. The second thing I want to highlight is that God saves Israel from herself. This is a, a main thing to highlight. So the salvation, the deliverance that God provides here, the heavenly king comes and shows up and provides, is actually deliverance from Israel herself. Now, if you walk back through Judges just really quickly, Othniel delivered Israel from the king of Mesopotamia, Judges 3. Ehud delivered Israel from Eglon, the king of Moab, Judges 3. Shamgar delivered Israel from the Philistines, Judges 3. Deborah and Barak delivered Israel from the Canaanites, Judges 4. Gideon delivered Israel from the Midianites, Judges 6 and 8. And then on the backside of the parable here in Judges 9, Jephthah delivered Israel from the Ammonites, Judges 11. But if you take a look at Judges 10, which comes right after our episode here, we'll discover something very interesting. At the end of this episode, Judges 10.1, we read this. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. There is no reference at all to Israel being delivered from an enemy. Why not? 
because Israel needs to be delivered from herself. Where's Abimelech? Who is Abimelech? Someone in Israel. Who are the leaders of Shechem? People in Israel. What is Israel's problem during the days of Abimelech? Herself. Israel is the problem. Israel needs deliverance from Israel. Unlike the earlier non-cyclical judge, wrote Tim Keller, Shamgar, no enemy is named. Who did Tola rise to save Israel from? Chapter 9 gives the answer. Tola saved Israel from itself. God's people ultimately need a leader who will rescue us from ourselves, from the failings and ambitions of our own hearts, and from the divisions and strife among us. Beloved, the Bible speaks of three enemies, right? We can talk about the devil as our enemy. We can talk about the world as our enemy. But the enemy here, a third enemy is the flesh, ourselves. And in the new covenant, we know that enemy. It's called the passions of the flesh, to speak of, Tim, uh, to speak of uh, Paul's language. It's called our desires, our sinful desires. We actually need deliverance from that. We are our own worst enemy so many times and so often. Galatians 5 puts it this way, the desires of the flesh are against the Holy Spirit. Romans 7.23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So my own body is an enemy. And 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Whoa. That's some powerful language. The passions of our flesh, the cravings of our flesh, actually wage war against our very souls. Beloved, we have an enemy, indeed in the devil in the world, but also in ourselves, also in our very flesh. And we need to be delivered from ourselves. The salvation needed in this passage isn't deliverance from our situation, it's deliverance from ourselves. We need a God who can save us from ourselves without destroying us, and he does this in two ways. He puts Christ on the cross instead of us so that Jesus makes payment for our selfishness and our rebellion. Our sin, the sin we chose, is paid for by Jesus who substitutes himself for us. He undergoes our punishment so that we are not destroyed. And then the second way that God delivers us from ourselves is he comes to take up residence within us. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in our hearts and lives as well, so that we can say the desires of the flesh are against the Holy Spirit and the desires of the Holy Spirit are against the flesh, Galatians 5.17. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. How is God delivering us from ourselves without destroying us? He's putting Jesus on the cross and then he's coming to take up residence inside of us so that the penalty of our sin is removed, fully paid for, and then the power of sin in our lives, it's subdued. But that is what God is doing in order to deliver us from ourselves. In Jesus, we have a Savior who not only dies in our place so our sins can be forgiven, but also lives inside of us. And then finally, I want us to focus on the selfless servants of the heavenly king. In verses 9, 11, and 13, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine in this parable, Jotham's parable, say something very interesting. The olive tree said to them, when they said, hey, you come and reign over us, the olive tree said, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored 
and go hold sway over the trees? Verse 11, after the fig tree was asked to come and reign over the cedars of Lebanon, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And verse 13, the vine said to them after the vine was asked, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? The olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine all had two things in common. They understood their reason for existence. They selflessly, they selflessly served their intended purpose. Why would I reign? It's not what I'm good at. I can't do it. I'm going to serve in the way that God has intended me to serve. What should the trees have thought when they came and asked them? They should have stopped for a moment. This is what some have pointed out. The fig tree, the olive tree, and the vine are actually giving the trees a lot of necessary information, but they don't do anything with it. The trees should have thought, huh, well, they're just serving their intended purpose. Maybe we should do the same. Maybe we should not try and erect an earthly king over us. Maybe we should actually just serve the Lord as our king. But the trees didn't get it. Instead, they go all the way down to a bramble <laughs> and ask the bramble, if the bramble will serve over them. Instead of seeking to follow after gods who provide us only misery and ruin, we should serve God in the capacity we are able. That's what the tree should have done. It's what we, as God's people, should do. Being faithful to obey him and serve him in the ways he has gifted us and enabled us to do just that. It's a really simple thing. Let me ask you this, and we'll close with something else. Are we spending our lives, our time, doing what the cedars of Lebanon did? Going through the earth, looking for a king to reign over us who's not the Lord. Wanting to be like other nations, wanting to be like the world around us. Are we spending our time doing that? Are we spending our time going around chasing power like Abimelech? Although that's, I think, uh, not so much the focus here as the focus. Indeed, he is a point of focus, but the focus is look at what these trees are doing. Look at what they're doing here. Or instead of chasing after the ways of the world, instead of looking for a different king other than the Lord, are we just looking to figure out how we can serve him? Beloved, God has made you and I cedars of Lebanon, as it were. Not olive trees, not fig trees, not vines, not brambles. And he has put us where we need to be. And he has uniquely gifted us, the ascended Christ, in order to serve him and his kingdom. And are we asking, Lord, how is it that I can serve you today? Or are we asking, how can I be like everybody else? Are we asking, Lord, what gifts have you given me to use and how have you enabled me to use them and what are the opportunities I can use them? Or are we busy just chasing other gods? That's what the trees, the cedars of Lebanon had to figure out. It's what we have to figure out as God's people. Let me close with this. Jesus came to this earth on a mission, beloved. It was a mission of service. When Jesus came, he was not confused about what he came to do. Jesus did not come down here even when he was tempted by the devil and say, oh yeah, reigning over these other kingdoms, I just bow down to the devil, that sounds great. He had steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem, Luke tells us. He came down here to seek and save what was lost, he came down here to confront sin and self-righteousness, to call people to repentance. And he came down here on his first trip 
to go all the way to the cross and die in the place of sinners and be resurrected again. And he knew his mission and he came to do his mission. And he wasn't here concerned about what is everybody else doing? I wanna be just like them. That's what our Lord and Savior has done for us, this mission of salvation, single-minded, single-focused, doing the will of his Father. Beloved, he's done this for you and me. He didn't come down here to pretend he was just like everybody else and want to fit in. He came down here to do what was necessary to give us eternal life. And now we belong to him. And now our sins are forgiven and we are saved and we have eternal life. And here's what he asks of us. Use the gifts I've given you. Serve me and my kingdom. Don't live like the world and chase other gods. Don't seek after other kings. I'm the great king. Serve me. Follow me. You are way more precious than olive trees, fig trees, vines, and brambles. You're the cedars of Lebanon. Go out into the world as those who've been adopted into my family and be concerned not about chasing other gods, but following me and serving me. Are we committed to that? Let's pray.